You're listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. For more teaching and resources, visit LargerStory.com. If I were giving a title to the theme of my thinking, it would be A Passion for Christ. How would you define the foundational requirement to be a truly Christian counselor? What is more central to somebody counseling as a Christian, as a Christ one, as a Christ follower? What's more foundational than perhaps anything else in becoming effective as a Christian counselor? My suggestion is that it's not training, that it's not even giftedness, but that it's a passion for Christ that's stronger than any other passion. It's a passion for Christ that reliably increases during every setback in life. And it's a passion for Christ that is sturdy enough for the counselor to courageously enter the profound mystery and the terrifying tragedy of human existence. When you get down to where the action is, it's really mysterious and is deeply tragic. And we're not going to have the courage to move into the realms of human existence that we're called upon to enter, that only a Christian can enter, that a secularist can never enter. We're not going to have the courage to deal with what really needs to be dealt with if we don't have a, a passion for Christ that's stronger than any other passion in our souls. I want to develop that thought by introducing um, an observation this morning that I'm sure many of you have made. When in the Gospels, when in our Lord's earthly ministry during his life, when did the Father speak on his behalf? There are three times in the Gospel records that the Father spoke from heaven regarding the Son. Only three times. Do you all recall when they are? Look at Mark chapter 1. We'll look at the baptism for just a moment. That's the first one. There are three times, and only three, that the Father spoke from heaven. I noticed this maybe a year or so ago, and I I found myself wondering, why these three times? Why wasn't he consistently bursting out from heaven every minute of every day? Why, when he fed the 5,000 that our Lord, did did the Father not burst out? Why, when he raised the dead... Did the Father not burst out? Why at the Last Supper did the Father not speak? Why these three times? Mark chapter 1, I'll just read it briefly. We're not going to look at it this morning. This is a preparation for later in the week. Verse 9, at that time, Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee and was baptized by John in the Jordan. And as Jesus was coming up out of the water, this gospel makes that clear. Another gospel tells us that as he was coming up out of the water, he was praying. We're not told what he was praying, But it's not too hard to make a reasonable guess. As he was coming up out of the water, he saw heaven and hear the passion. He saw heaven being torn open. By whom? By the Father. That's passion. And as the Father tore open the heavens, the Spirit descended on him like a dove, and a voice was heard from heaven. A voice came from heaven, the Father, obviously. And he said, you're my son whom I love. With you I am well pleased. Don't take that as an academic verse. That's a passionate outburst by a loving father. 
The father of the prodigal son burst out when his sinful son came back in repentance. Well, there's no sinful son here. But the father is bursting out with a far richer passion than even the father of the prodigal. And he shouts and says, you're my beloved son. I I love you. You're terrific. What's the second time the father burst out from heaven? We'll not turn to it, but I'll mention it. We'll look at it more carefully later this week. The second time is in Mark chapter 9, other passages, of course, the transfiguration. In the transfiguration, the Lord was transfigured, and something of his glory was made known in a way that had not been made known before. And Peter, James, and John were privy to that. They had the opportunity to see the Lord being transfigured and to, I presume, overhear the conversation of the Lord with whom? With Moses and Elijah. Why those two? What were the three of them talking about? They were talking about his, his exodus, the true exodus from life, not the exodus from Egypt, but the decease of the Lord, the death of, the death of Christ. That was their topic. Why, when the Lord was transfigured, was that the topic? <clears throat> and why, at that point, when Peter, who was overcome with fear and didn't know what to say, which never stopped Peter from saying something, When Peter said, Lord, this is terrific. Let's build three tabernacles. Let's celebrate all three of you. Why at that point could the Father not hold himself back? Why were the heavens torn open a second time and the Father shouts at Peter? And my interpretation, my translation of it would be something like this. For crying out loud. You want to celebrate all three of these people? No, no, no. That's my son. You listen to him. That's the second outburst. What's the third outburst? The third time, John chapter 12, don't turn to it now because we're not going to look at it carefully this morning. I'm introducing the thoughts. But in John chapter 12, you have that interesting time when the Greeks came to um, Philip and said, we want to see Jesus. And the word for see there has more than, catch a, more than the idea of catching a glimpse. That wasn't all that difficult to do. They were saying, we want to have the opportunity to, to stare at this man, to get to know who this one is. And Philip didn't know what to do, so he calls Andrew. The two of them go to Christ and say, there are some Greeks out here that, that, are, that, are, that are following the Jewish religion and that they've been attracted to you, and I presume they went with excitement in their voices to Jesus and said, the news is getting out. The Gentiles now want you too. And Jesus' response, from one perspective, wasn't even socially courteous. What, what, would, what would I do if you're here with a friend and... Uh, you came to me and said, I have a friend that wants to meet you. Suppose I responded by saying, mine hour has come. What on earth? Shouldn't I say, I haven't got time now, or love to meet him, or maybe tomorrow morning at breakfast? Or, I mean, take into account what's been said. Jesus said, mine hour has not yet come, lest a kernel of wheat, fall, lest a kernel of wheat falls in the ground and dies, it abides alone. Then he keeps on talking in irrelevant language from one perspective. Certainly it wasn't irrelevant, but it appears that at first. And then he goes on to say, as he turns to the Father, he says, Father, my my soul is deeply troubled because the hour has come now and I'm going to be offered up. And what shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, it's for this reason I came. Then he turns to his Father, and I believe with great passion, he says to his Father, Father, glorify your name. And then at the third time, the father bursts out and says, I have, and I will. And the people around heard thunder. What on earth is going on? Three times, and only three, 
that the father burst out from heaven and spoke either to his son or on behalf of his son. Why those three times? What's going on? The reason I want to look at, with, look at these thoughts with you this week is <clears throat> one central idea, and that is this, that the father has a passion for Jesus that you and I can come to share. When we understand the father's passion for the son, when we enter into what got the father so excited, if I can put it that way, when we enter, when we enter into the passion of the father for the son, then maybe we too can develop something of the passion for Jesus that will be stronger than any other passion, a passion that will increase no matter what the setbacks of life, and a passion that will be sturdy enough to give us the courage to move into the deepest parts of the human soul where the mystery is profound and the tragedy is terrifying and come out winners, victors, joyful, confident. Now take that introductory thought three times the father burst out and put it over here on a shelf for the time. I'm going to come back to it, but not for a couple days. All right? Take that thought and put it over here. And now what I want to do is go back to some Old Testament history and develop my understanding of why the Father was so passionate at those three times. Take those three times and put them over here for the time. Put them out of your mind just for the moment. And let's go back to some Old Testament history that will seem like I'm going into some entirely different thought. But I'm setting the stage for coming back to those three times. Take your Bibles, and I want you to turn, if you will, to 2 Corinthians 11. 2 Corinthians chapter 11. <clears throat> and Paul is talking to the Corinthians, and in verse 3... <clears throat> He says, concerning the Corinthians, I'm afraid for you, I'm afraid that just as Eve was deceived by the serpent's cunning, and the word for deceived there is a very strong word, it means totally deceived. It doesn't mean mildly deceived or partly deceived, she was thoroughly deceived, it's a very strong word. Paul says, I'm afraid that you too are going to be deceived in the same kind of deception that the cunning of the devil persuaded Eve to become thoroughly, totally deceived with disastrous consequences. I don't want your life to become a disaster like Eve's was. And the basis for Eve's disaster was that she was totally deceived. About what? What was Eve deceived about? Did the problem in human existence come through bad family background? A little difficult with Adam and Eve there, wouldn't it? They didn't have bad parents. They had no parents. That was helpful. But even without parents, they found a way to mess things up. So the root of the problem wasn't background. The root of the problem had something to do with a wrong understanding of God. Eve was deceived, totally. And Paul said, I'm scared. You're getting deceived just like Eve. And the serpent's cunning is going to get to you, and the results are going to be disastrous just like they were for her. Now look at 1 Timothy. 1 Timothy 2, a similar passage. <clears throat> Verse 14, we're told an additional thought that adds to Paul's thought in Corinthians. In 1 Timothy 2 and verse 14, Paul says, Adam was not the one deceived. It was the woman who was totally deceived. Same word. And on the basis of deception, became a sinner. What's the origin of sin? Answer, deception. 
What's true of the heart above everything else? It's thoroughly deceived. But my question is, about what? And however you answer that question, when you say that Eve was thoroughly deceived, however you answer that, you have to say that whatever Eve was deceived about, Adam wasn't deceived about. Have you ever thought about that? What was Eve deceived about that Adam wasn't deceived about? Turn back to Genesis and let's see if we can figure some of that out. Genesis chapter 3, where everything got off on a wrong foot. Let me read you the passage, it's very familiar. The serpent was more crafty, cunning. Paul called him cunning, here the word is crafty. Same idea. The serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he, undoubtedly Satan, said to the woman, and again, why to the woman? Well, for among other reasons, it's true that God gave instructions to Adam before Eve was created, and Adam had to pass along the instructions to Eve. He comes to Eve, who had no direct statement from God about the, the bountiful provision that God had made, and the one restriction that he had insisted upon. Did God really say, the serpent says to the woman, you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And right there he adds a phrase with the word, you must not eat from any tree in the garden. He knew what God had said. He just distorts it there. God said, you may eat from every tree in the garden. Check one. God's emphasis, God's revelation of himself was on his generosity. The woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the trees. She dropped out the word every. She diminishes the generosity of God. We may eat fruit from the trees in the garden. You kind of hear a big deal. But God did say you must not eat fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. Well, it wasn't in the middle. She got that wrong too. And you must not touch it. God never said that. Or you will die. Drops out the word surely. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you'll be like God, knowing good and evil. In other words, God's holding out on you, Eve. There's something better that you can have through disobedience than you can have through obedience. And the deception now takes root in Eve's heart. And the woman saw the fruit of the tree was good for food, pleasing to the eye, also desirable for gaining wisdom. On the basis of that, she took some and ate it. I presume the answer to the question, what was she deceived about, lies in there somewhere. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and not deceived about the same thing Eve was deceived about. But he ate it too. Now, there's a mystery we're never going to quite figure out exactly why did he do that. I'm not going to answer that. No one's going to get that quite down. But, but he did it, and there's some thoughts as to why he did it that maybe we can come up with. But what we do know is he wasn't deceived the same way Eve was deceived, and yet he took the fruit too. Now the question is why? What was the process going on in him? Then the eyes of both of them were open and they realized that they were naked. Now let's try to look at the, the data and see if we can come up with some suggestion as to what Eve was deceived about that Adam wasn't deceived about and how it all works. Approach it this way in your minds. What had God made known to Adam and Eve before the fall? What had God made known about himself? about his character before the fall? Answer? 
We could put that in a lot of ways, I suppose, but we'd all agree that at least one element of his character that God made known before the fall was his generosity. Is that accurate? Here's a garden. Every fruit, every tree in here with fruit, have a good time. I've given you each other. I've designed it perfectly. I've designed a woman for the man. You guys are going to fit together physically, personally, spiritually. This is a wonderful union of man and woman. I think his generosity, his commitment to our pleasure, his commitment to our joy, his, 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 his determination to provide everything that could make our lives wonderful and happy and fun and fulfilling and meaningful. And you're to subdue and you're to rule and, Adam, you've named the animals and together you're to be heirs of life together as you move into the world on my behalf. And I've given you everything your heart could long for, deep relationship with each other, with me, deep impact on your world. I want you to go out. I'm a generous God. That's one thing he revealed, at least that. We'd agree on that. The second thing he revealed was his holiness. But I have a prohibition. If we're going to get along, one thing is clear. I'm God and you're not. And there are certain standards. Obedience is the foundation of our relationship. And I don't want you to eat of the knowledge of good and evil. And many commentators take the view that the word evil does not so much mean moral evil as bad things. I don't want you taking responsibility for arranging for your good and avoiding your bad. I'll take charge of that for you. Trust me with arranging for your good and avoiding your bad. That's the idea, I believe. I'll take responsibility for arranging for your good and seeing to it that bad doesn't come into your life. What do all of us do with all of our lives at the time we're little? Answer, we maneuver. We maneuver to maximize the good and to minimize the bad. Isn't that right? Why? We've eaten the tree. God says, don't do that. For goodness sakes, don't do that. Why? Because I'm terrific. I'll arrange for all that for you. So he revealed that he was a very good God who was going to provide all these wonderful things, and he would see to it that they would be safe and they would be protected, and the good that God designed would come, the bad that God didn't want to come would never come. God was in charge. God was good. Now, if that's what God revealed about himself before the fall, my suggestion is that's what Eve was deceived about. Eve was deceived by the devil into believing that God was not good. That she would make out better if she took responsibility for, her, for arranging for her own good. Because the idea in Eve's mind that Satan put there is God's holding out on you. There's something better that he's not willing to provide because he's not all that good. Why did Oswald Chambers say the root of all sin is the suspicion that God isn't good? It goes back to the garden. And Eve was totally deceived. She came to the conclusion that there was something better to be gained by skirting God. Now, isn't that a struggle that all of us have? How many of you were at points in your life you thought you'd never be? And you aren't thrilled about it? I mean, there's good ways to say that. There's bad ways to say that. There's good ways that we're at points in our life and we're grateful for that. Other ways that we have a good friend that was in our wedding Years ago, we were with a few months ago, and she married shortly after Rachel and I married. And Rachel and I just celebrated our 26th, and we really love each other, and our marriage is going stronger. And this good friend of ours, her husband dumped her a couple years ago, and living with some other woman. And her sentence to us was, I, I never thought I'd be 
48 years old and divorced. It's not what I wanted. Is God holding out? Why didn't God arrange for her to meet a different man? What's the matter with God anyhow? When you really trust, look what happens. You all choose to be born into the families you were born into? Of course not. A good God gave you that father? God, if you were really good, things would be different. Eve concluded God wasn't really all that good. God, you're not good, meaning there's something better to be gained that you're not willing to give me. I cannot fundamentally, finally trust your goodness. I'm going to take a bite, symbolically stating, I'm going to take responsibility for arranging for my good and for avoiding my bad. That's what I'm going to take responsibility for, because I now believe a lie. The lie is, you're not good. There's something better to be found by skirting you. Now, Adam was not deceived. About what? He was not deceived about what God had already revealed about himself. Adam took a bite of the fruit, believing the truth. The truth that God was not holding out. So why did he eat? What is the one thing God could not reveal about his character until sin came into the world? What's the one thing that God could not reveal about his character? There's no way until sin came into the world. Answer? The depths of his goodness. His grace. Now here's Adam... Now look at the dilemma he's in. This is not fiction, this is narrative. Here's a real man talking to his real woman, who is now a real sinner. Adam hasn't sinned yet. And he's looking at his wife, and he's got himself a big problem. What's his problem? God, I know that everything you've revealed about yourself so far, I believe it's true. I don't believe it's smart to eat of this fruit. I don't believe that we can do better without you. But my wife, she's been tricked and she's taken a bite. She's rebelled against you, God. I have no experience of what you do with rebellion. You've never revealed anything about what you do when your creature spits in your face. I believe what you've already revealed about yourself, but I'm not confident that you're good enough to handle this unprecedented situation. If Eve believed that God wasn't good, there was better things to be gained by skirting God, then Adam, I suggest, believed that God wasn't good enough to handle people who rebelled. What do you suppose God is feeling as he watches Eve become deceived and he watches Adam basically turn to the Father and say, if I put my full trust in you, I'm not sure if there are enough depths to your goodness to pull this one off. What did the father feel? Don't you think he was bursting at the seams saying, I long with all my being to reveal me in my fullness in a way that nobody will ever doubt. I want more than anything else to reveal myself so that people will see me, because when they see me, I'm irresistible. I'm not only good, I'm committed to your well-being, but I'm good enough that there's nothing that you can do that is going to turn me off to the point where I'm going to say, take a hike. 
There's something better that he's not giving, said Eve. There's something bad that just might make him quit on us, said Adam. God, you're not good. God, you're not good enough. I wonder how the father felt at that point. From that point on, he put in motion a plan that had at its core the revelation of his character. And he provided a number of types all through Old Testament history. You have Joseph and all the other types. The whole tabernacle was a type. All these foreshadowings of his own character. But they were all merely types. They were all imperfect. Can you imagine what the father felt when Jesus came up out of the water? Why did Jesus come? Now, there are several accurate answers to that question. One accurate answer is he came to seek and to save that which was lost. He told us that. So that's certainly an accurate answer. But I would suggest that the foundational reason why Jesus came was, can be very simply put, there's a lot of passages that teach this, Jesus came to reveal the Father. Can you imagine that when Adam and Eve both sinned, that Jesus turned to the Father and said, Father, I want to go show them what you're like. I want to go show them how good you are. I'm going to do something that if they will look at it, it'll reveal your character so deeply that when people see it, they'll have no choice, if you will, but to believe how good you are. Their choice will be automatic. It'll be necessary. They'll be drawn to recognize the depths of your character. Father, I'm going to go reveal what you're like. The Father in heaven, when he saw Jesus come up out of the water, bursts out from heaven and says, I love you because you're doing the one thing that every man and woman has needed since Adam and Eve began this whole mess. You're revealing what I'm like in an indisputable way. You're my son, and I love you deeply. Question, why is it so difficult for all of us to believe that? Why, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper, do we leave within half an hour and snap at our spouse? Why, when we celebrate the Lord's Supper... Is the next week characterized by sometimes nothing more holy than the week before the Lord's Supper when we sit there and look at the final revelation of the character of God that Adam and Eve never clearly saw? What is there in us that keeps us from believing the revelation of God? What are the inclinations of our soul that make it difficult, that make us inclined, better phrase, make us inclined to share in Adam and Eve's error, in Eve's error, God? I'm not sure if you're all that good. There's something better that true goodness would give. Therefore, you're not truly good. I better look out for myself. After all, I was raped. So I better see to it that my femininity never gets expressed in a way which might ever entice a man. I'm going to look out for my good because your goodness is not sufficient. The deception of Eve. God, I've gone through so many problems and I'm such a mess. I can't imagine that you're up to the job but still working with a mess like me. You're not good enough. And, the, and Jesus reveals to the Father, He's good and He's good enough. And we struggle with believing it. Why? I want to look at that question tomorrow morning. Why is it that we have a hard time believing in the goodness of God? And in preparation for that, let me suggest you read Genesis 4, 5, and the first eight verses of Genesis 6. Read Genesis 4, 5, and the first eight verses of Genesis 6, if you have time between now and tomorrow morning. Read those passages, and we'll look tomorrow morning at why it's so hard for us to believe what Jesus so perfectly revealed that Adam and Eve were, in their own unique ways, deceived about.
Father, help us to believe. I pray that this week will be a week where we'll come to grips a little more fully, maybe, with the fact that no matter what's happening in our lives, that you're still to be trusted. Father, as you reduce us to points of immobility, where the pain is so great, the fear is so great that we can't move, help us to value those moments. And perhaps the deception can be broken a bit. And in our stillness, we can see that you're God. I pray that somehow the cutting of the serpent will be defeated in our lives this week a little bit more. That we'll come to believe what Adam didn't quite catch, that no matter what's going on in our lives, that you really are good enough. You'll stay involved with us no matter what our backgrounds, our problems, our sin. Father, help us to develop a passion for the one who revealed your heart. And to have that passion characterize us more than anything else. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening to Larger Story Messages with Dr. Larry Crabb. To learn more, visit LargerStory.com.